you know, going into it, even though this was my project and my vision coming to light, it doesn't mean that uncovering my physical scars and uncovering my body was an easy feat for me. It's not like I was skipping in there, like just dropping my shirt and, and saying, take me as I am. <laughs> it really wasn't like that. There was a lot of sleepless nights leading up to it. And, yeah. and, and just, again, all of that trauma and emotion of processing like your body, you don't even look at your own body. So how is somebody else going to see you when you can't even stand to look at yourself? about the nuances of our lives as people of color told through our cancer journeys. I'm your host, Jodi Ambury. Our guest on today's episode is Michelle Odewan. Her journey with her body and her breasts started when she was just 14 years old. How do those moments of fright and trauma come back to us years later? What do we learn about not only accepting our bodies, but defending our bodies against racism articulated as disbelief and erasure? Well, (laughs) it's a journey. And you can learn more about Michelle's journey and how she created the Breast Recognition Project, a beautiful catalog of the mastectomy scars of women of color in just a few moments. But before we get started, I have to remind you to check out the show notes for links to these amazing photos and the stories of the women behind them. Here's my conversation with Michelle. Sometimes I think when we look at Black women and we forget that we were once Black girls Mm -hmm. who didn't know yet that the world expected us to be superhumanly strong that we were still girls trying to figure out who we were, how we felt about ourselves, learning about our bodies, trying to interpret all these external messages about who we are and how that was impacted as we started to engage with systems and institutions around us, right? And it made me think about, I had this back issue when I was a kid. And so very early on, I was always kind of like in and out of doctor's offices a lot, Mm -hmm. which for me in my situation to then in adulthood be in and out of doctor's offices triggers that little girl and the fear and the anxiety and a lot of the miscommunication and mistreatment sometimes in the healthcare system. And a lot of times I felt like people just like don't understand me. And that has shown up constantly in my life. Anyway, like I've been haunted a bit about your own experience and how much it's connected to mine and I'm sure how much it connects to other people. And so, you know, can you tell me about your first experience with your own breast health? Yeah. And your interactions with the healthcare system, even as a child? Yeah, I can definitely identify with, growing up as a young black girl and that transition into womanhood and then these expectations of society on you to be stronger or or something else than what you really are when you're just a child and i i was one of those girls who was always the tallest in the class 
you know, I, I, I grew at a very young age and I grew very, very quickly. You know, in, in grade five, I was probably taller than most of the grade eight boys. I just grew quickly at a very young age, which set me into puberty at a, at a very young age. And so you're, you're not really in coming into your own body. It's just like it's taking on its own form. It's growing at a rate that you're not ready for yet. And then um, at 14, as your body is continuing this transition from girlhood to womanhood and you're taller than everybody else, everybody has these expectations because you're taller, you can maybe tolerate more or we, you're, you need to be treated like you're older than what you really, really are, but you're still a kid still naive, still wondering about the world and trying to figure these things out and your role in it. And then you discover a lump in your breast. These breasts that are still developing, how could this possibly be? Breast cancer is an old woman's thing. And so I sat with that lump and that fear probably for a few months because I wasn't sure that I wanted to acknowledge my breasts. I wasn't sure that I wanted other people to be looking at them and to touch them. So I was, I was really afraid of my body and what was going on with it and all of these changes. Uh, and then eventually I just, the anxiety and the stress of it got the better of me. And I, I, I approached my mom and I said to her, listen, I've got this, this lump in my breast. And, you know, she was 100% supportive, you know, took me to the family doctor and uh, took me to see some specialists. And, you know, the ball just started rolling from there, you know, from uh, appointments, biopsies and what have you. Um, but, but, it, but it was a lot for a young girl, you know, even though I was 14, I still consider myself a young girl because you are a girl, you're not a woman. And so that was a lot of stress, anxiety, pressure um, to be put on a young kid. Why do you think this particular instance with the lump is something that has been so imprinted on you? What made this particular discovery of the lump in your breasts so impactful? There's a, there's a lot of reasons why it imprinted on me. One is because at a very young age, as my breasts were developing, I became hyper aware of them. And this idea that, you know, there was something wrong with my breasts from a very young age, as they were developing, I felt like something was wrong. So that was really scary to deal with at a very young age. Another thing was, you know, going through the healthcare system and feeling like people were maybe perceiving me as being older than what I was, or that I could tolerate more, as you said, as a black woman, sometimes people have expectations that you can tolerate pain and deal with things differently. What really had a negative impact on me was the biopsy process. So going into a doctor's office with two older white men and having to take your clothes off for them and bare your breasts and have them touch them and insert a needle while you're standing there to take a biopsy sample. For me, it was one of the most inhumane experiences that I can recall, you know, going through. And that stuck with me for a very long time as well. And then there was the physical scar afterwards. We did proceed to have the lump removed. And so they made an incision around the side of my nipple to sort of like hide the scar. 
But what it ended up doing was healing in such a way that there was a big lump, a big ridge right around my nipple. And so my nipples on my breast didn't match. You could see that something was off with one of them. And so it was just this constant reminder as I was growing up um, and looking at my body when other people maybe might have celebrated their, their womanly bodies, I was always trying to hide mine because I was aware that there was something different about it. And there seems like a, like a misunderstanding of, of how people with darker skin heal and the decisions around kind of where incisions go. And I don't know if like anyone even talked to you about like how this whole process would impact you and your relationship to your body as you're having a developing and growing body. And I think people sometimes discount some of these things as cosmetic or these kind of interactions temporary because at least you have the lump removed. Like at least there's this like larger accomplishment Mm -hmm. without really paying attention to the impact of the process and the scars like yeah there's there's scars on both levels there's there's the emotional scar which was something I never felt like I had a voice in expressing because my my primary concern was that I had a lump what did we do we solved the problem we took the lump out but that that whole process of going into the doctor's offices and having somebody at the age of 14 two older men in there you know doing what they need to do which is take care of your your lump but I was not prepared for that going into that. That was what this experience was going to entail. And I just sort of had to swallow all of that. And then there's the physical scar as well. So there's a lot to process there. You know, there's the emotional and the physical. And there wasn't support for either of those, you know. For them, they did their job. The problem was solved. She can go on. It was a benign cyst is what I was told. So there is no issue. But moving forward from that day on um, and discovering other lumps and just always questioning this, like, what is this lump this time? Do I want to put myself through that process again and have two older men disrobe in front of them and have them touch your breast and poke at them? I didn't want that. Didn't want that. that. That scared me. So how do you think that experience at 14 and everything that followed that in those immediate months or years, like how has that impacted you now, now decades later? You know, I was, I was really just removed from my, 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 I don't want to say sexuality. I never thought myself as like, as a, as a sexual kind of person. I was just really acutely aware of, of this and it just impacted you know my interactions with people the clothes that I wore because I was just always trying to put up this wall to make sure that attention was never put on my breasts which then when you become a mom shifts right if you choose to breastfeed and so with this awareness and this kind of distancing from your body and your breasts how did that shift when you started breastfeeding your kids yeah so when I was pregnant um, that was one of the things that was really important for me was to see if I was able to breastfeed and so that experience of motherhood um, being able to nourish and feed my kids and develop that bond from breastfeeding that took that negative experience of my breast being something painful and ugly and scarred 
to something that was mothering and nurturing and natural. And so it gave me a different sense of ownership of my body again, where I, I felt like I didn't own my breasts anymore. They were just something that I didn't like. And then this made me feel like this, this is a part of my body. This is a part of my family. I'm giving something to my children. So it, it completely transformed my experience with my breasts. I don't have kids now, but I want them. So I keep surveying my family and friends. Like, is this weird if I'm going to plan to have a child on my own? It's not. <laughs> I think I have I think friends I have friends who have done that and it it is totally cool thank you for that affirmation Michelle I appreciate that and I think about that bonding and what does it mean to put my body in service of like you're saying like nourishing your child nourishing your family and that feels very scary to me now thinking about that that possibility post this new relationship to my body after my cancer surgery. And the fact that like currently now, like 70% of my body's numb. And so what does that mean when I need to have that close proximity and like sensory impact with children is something that I feel really nervous about. And also something that nobody thinks is important <laughs> to talk to me about when I talk to my doctors about, you know, motherhood and what this body means. So I think like in my situation, I'm trying to think about that post this body change. But then when I think about your story, navigating this transformation with this relationship to your body, with your, this relationship to your breasts, but then finding new lumps can you talk to me a bit about like how you found the lumps in your breasts and what that engagement was like to then make the decision to pursue this as something you want to figure out like what the heck is going on? Yeah. So after, you know, from the age of 14 beyond, it wasn't like that one uh, breast cyst that was removed was the only one. And then all of a sudden, you know, years later, I developed breast cancer. That's not how the story was for me. So it was me discovering other lumps and me developing, you know, as an adult, finding my own family practitioner and developing a relationship with him and feeling comfortable with him doing breast exams on me and feeling that that was important and him making referrals to, to have those lumps checked out and scanned and what have you to reassure me. So, you know, into my adulthood, there were always other lumps. I shied away from doing those biopsies because that was a very traumatic experience for me, but I sort of took confidence in the fact that I was being monitored. And I, I think I communicated pretty clearly with my, with my family practitioner that I was concerned about breast cancer. And so when I was nursing my daughter and then I'd had a, a lump and then it, it seemed like it got bigger. And then I, he sent me, made a referral for me to, to see a breast specialist, a breast cancer specialist. When I went to see him, I think I was in his office literally for two minutes. He basically took his two hands, squeezed both my breasts. Like he was, you know, touching that, you know, bread in the bag to see how soft and fresh it is. And he said to me, you know what, you've just got lumpy breasts, you've got nothing to worry about. And the, the appointment was over. That was the end of it. 
There was no conversation about what do I do if I discover other lumps? Should I be bringing this up to my doctor every time I have a lump? So I sort of came away from that appointment. Well, he's the expert. I'm, I'm just going to have lumpy breasts. I have to live with it. But just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean that you actually believe it. When I was nursing my son, there was a lump that had been there for years and something in the back of my mind said it's different it feels a little bit different at the same time the voice of this breast cancer specialist telling me you've got nothing to worry about you've got nothing to worry about you've just got lumpy breasts is playing in my mind you know and and so i'm sort of torn between the two do i go back to the doctor's office and say, listen, I know this one is always there. Can we look at it again? Versus the expert told me there's nothing to worry about. So I let it go for a few months and then finally got the better of me. And I just went to my doctor and said, listen, can we look at this? And we got the ball rolling. And so from the ultrasound, we saw that it looked different a little bit, went to the hospital and had a mammogram biopsy another biopsy to find out that it was actually the original lump that had been there for years had changed and it was now cancerous how did that land on you that like you yes these people are breast cancer specialists that's great I'm a specialist of my own body and my own experience and it's almost as, I don't want to call it gaslighting, but that's what it feels like when it's like, I know my body, I'm telling you that there's something wrong. And then you're telling me with your kind of bread bag squeezing examination <laughs> that there's nothing wrong. And then fast forward many doctor visits later, it is exactly what you knew and were concerned that it would be. Where was your mind in that? Like, how does that make you feel to be at the, at the end of that? And you're like, I freaking told you. Yeah, I was I was really really angry that I let myself believe this other person that I felt like I was finally at a place where I was in tune with my breasts and I was nurturing and feeding my kids and then all of a sudden this happened and and it felt like my body was failing me again and then I felt like the system was failing me because I was not made aware that I was still at risk of getting breast cancer. You know, I, I was just led to believe that everything that I experienced there on after from that, you know, specialist appointment meant that I was, I was fine. And, and really I wasn't fine. So I was, I was angry. I, I was frustrated um, that I felt like the system had failed me and that I was sort of led down a road that wasn't, the right one for me to be on. And you still guided the path, right? Because it wasn't like your first diagnosis was even the correct one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about your diagnosis journey and even you shepherding them through that path? Yeah. So, you know what, go, so going through the diagnosis, so, you know, I, I, we went through the ultrasounds, was sent to the hospital, and they said, yes, it does look different. You do a mammogram. In the mammogram, they're telling me, we, well, we can't really see much because you've got really dense breasts. That's the first time I've ever heard this thing about breast density. I don't know what to make of it, but I, I just 
file it in the back of my mind as you know something that I'm being told. And then when they're they're giving you options about biopsies, um, and the, you know, so we can do a fine needle or or a more in depth core biopsy. And I'm thinking like I'm 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 reliving that trauma from being a 14 year old. And my my defense mechanism is saying, you know, do the least invasive. So I say, go and do the fine needle biopsy. That's what I want to find out that that one was, they couldn't get enough sample. So I had to go back and do a core biopsy, which is more invasive. Um, they take a bigger sample. And so from that one, you know, I get a, the pathology report and they say, well, you know, you're good news. It is breast cancer, but it's stage zero. So it is in one of the, the, the breast milk ducts. It's encapsulated. It's good. We can just go in there and take it out. And I can understand from their perspective that that looks like good news. But for me, it was like, this was the thing that I've been waiting for all along, you know, that I told you so. I knew this was going to come back to bite you, Michelle. And I knew in that moment that the only option for me was not to go home and celebrate, yay, this is stage zero. It was, I need to have a bilateral mastectomy. I don't care what you say, the breasts need to go. And so it, it was a lot of feeling like people were trying to talk me out of my decision. Um, we can do a lumpectomy, we can salvage your breast, you know, it's, it's only in one breast. And, you know, the more I kept getting that kind of narrative for them, the more I was pushing back and, you know, doing my own research on the side and looking at, you know, what are my risk factors, you know, what are the risks of recurrence, what does this look like in women of color and black people. And, and so I just felt like, no, I needed to stand my ground. So one of the, I guess one of the, the, the initial steps was to say, okay, you know what? We can't schedule the, the surgical oncologist and the plastic surgeon to do reconstruction on the same day. Their schedules don't, they're conflicting right now. So the best thing we can offer you right now is a lumpectomy. And the good news is with a lumpectomy, the cancer will be out. And then if you don't want to go through with the mastectomy, at least the cancer is out. And I said, well, let's do the lumpectomy get the cancer out, but just know that you need to schedule me for the mastectomy after that. I'm, I'm not stopping there, you know? And so lo and behold, when we get the pathology report from the lumpectomy, it's actually not stage zero. They found some other things that they did not pick up in the mammogram. This was a much more aggressive breast cancer than they'd originally thought. So I said, we're still doing this mastectomy thing, went through with that, you know, they took a couple of lymph nodes out and then they said, well, you know, there's this micrometastatic invasion in one of the two lymph nodes we removed. Good news, you're stage two, we removed that lymph node, take some, you know, hormone therapy pills and, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you in a few months. And I said, you know what? No, that just doesn't sit well with me either. Um, so it was just always just this constant push and you're, you're sort of getting tired from having to push all of the time. You're like, is, 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 there, is there something they're not understanding? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> is this the standard of care for everybody that you have to 
push and keep asking. So I, I did keep pushing and I, and I asked for a referral to a radiation oncologist because radiation wasn't recommended for me. And because the lymph node involvement was so small, they didn't have a big enough sample to test and see if chemotherapy was a valid option for me to do the oncotype testing. So they said it came back inconclusive because there wasn't enough sample. They took that as a good sign um, that I didn't have to go on chemo. It was actually when I was getting prepped for the radiation oncologist to look and see where they would need to radiate me for you know, therapy. When he looked at the scans, he said, oh my goodness, there's actually something else going on. There's something in your lungs and something in your, your neck that we need to, to look at. So we go through biopsies of the neck and the lungs, and then we actually find out that I have metastatic breast cancer and thyroid cancer at the same time. Two unrelated, you know, from that stage zero just a few months ago to actually realizing that that micrometastatic deposit in my, in my lymph node actually created both lungs filled with multiple tumors. I just was not presenting as a sick person. And so nobody thought it was important or necessary to, to do all that follow-up and, and see if there was more going on with my body. But it was something that I felt like if, I, if it got to this point where one of those lumps was cancerous, I knew that this was the road that I needed to take and it was going to be hard, but it was the right thing to do. And I just needed to make sure that my voice was being heard on this journey. That's exhausting. It sounds exhausting. I feel exhausted even kind of like walking through what that could be like. Because for every comma that you have in your story is equal to like four doctor's appointments. <laughs> and like, Well, yes. And, and when you think of it, so when, when, you, when you look at the diagnosis of, as a whole, you can appreciate, you know, I'm, I'm a mother. So when I lost my breast, I'm still nursing my son. So I'm having to deal with the loss of my breast and the loss of that connection with my son. And then all of the other appointments that were added on top of that. So I was working full time, having to take a leave from work. I've got the surgical oncologist, the plastic surgeon, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist. I have ENT to look at the thyroid cancer and endocrinologist to look at the thyroid cancer as well to decide if you know if I need to go on therapy for thyroid replacement uh who else was in there so I developed a frozen shoulder which I was told couldn't have been possible because the lump the cancer was on the left side but I developed frozen shoulder on the right side so I had a, a physiatrist and then I needed psychosocial support so I had a psychiatrist, a psychologist, because I felt like my voice wasn't being heard, a dietitian at the hospital to see what I could do in terms of my diet to help. And so there, there was like layer upon layer appointments and having to hear your story. And at one point I was just in so much pain and I didn't know who to call. So I'm making all these phone calls to these different specialists and I'm describing my pain and then I get a 
of callback saying, no, 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 you need to discuss this with this doctor. I call that doctor. No, 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 this is not my fault. You need to call this doctor. And I just spent the whole day on the phone calling doctors to tell them I was in pain and nobody stepped up to help me deal with my pain. It was a low point. It was really a low point. It's like, I think people who aren't in this don't understand that you don't just have a doctor, you end up having a care team. But even the idea of a care team is a little misleading because not everyone on this team knows that they have teammates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so you are the center of the team, which then makes you like, you know, switching metaphors here, but like you become the project manager of your own care and you are the sick person. And so you have to have enough wherewithal to manage this, manage yourself, and then manage your family, your work, and other responsibilities. Repeating your story over and over. I don't know about you, but for me, I would always, I'd have my kind of canned elevator pitch of what my issue is. So then we could just move on and talk about the thing that I need to talk about. And then on top of all of this, people look at you and and people said this to me almost verbatim, you don't present as a sick person. You don't look sick. You don't look sick. Yes. You don't look sick. You look great. You look good. Your hair looks good. Your skin's glowing. Exactly. And I'm like, well, I feel um, like shit. I'm not doing well. To me, it aligns with this sense as Black women, you're so strong, you're so resilient, you're doing all this Black girl magic stuff, and you can be deteriorating, right? Yes. And people don't see that. And so I think about this whole, like, you don't look sick as you are so strong, which means it's easier to ignore the fact that there's so much going on, a lot of stress and a lot of hurt and actual sickness, even if you don't see it as sick. It's easy to dismiss. Yes, Um, yes. It's easy to dismiss that person because they don't look sick. And it's easy to dismiss their concerns because if you really are sick, maybe you would be crying more in my office. Maybe you would be, you know, looking a different way, you know? And, and so that was one of those things where I felt like that stereotype of you're strong um, was, was coming to bite me in the butt, you know? Like, I don't feel strong, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to fall apart in front of you, but you still need to hear what I'm saying. Yeah. That's the tough part of like, I have to show up for this. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that. But then that works against me because then you think I'm more fine than I am just because I'm handling my business, right? I've got a 10 minute appointment with you. Uh, I'm not going to spend eight of them crying into a, you know. (laughs) Exactly. And then you spend the last two minutes like trying to rush your situation. So I think this aligns with what you're saying around like, there's this diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, and then there's being black having cancer. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you have anything that you want to share more about, you know, how your blackness comes into play as you're navigating your healthcare. Well, I, I, I think the care that I got was, is, is good. I'm, I'm getting good care. I'll, I'll be clear about that. But I feel like some of the experiences are definitely related to being Black, sort of feeling like you're not being heard, 
at one point, my mother who is white, you know, I, I felt like I was asking questions and feeling like I was not getting the depth of answers that I wanted. Or sometimes I was, my, my questions are being dismissed or we'll talk about that at a later time when, you, when you're ready for it. Um, why do you think I'm not ready for this information right now? Like if I'm asking you the question, it's because I want an answer to it. And I felt like a lot of those experiences of being swept under the rug or being dismissed um, or asking me frequently, like, do you understand what we're saying? Like somehow I'm less intelligent. And, and so I felt like in those experiences, I, I felt myself shrinking that was really hard to be there in those moments and feel like the reason why they were taking, addressing some of my concerns was because I brought my mom in, who's also a retired nurse. So she understood how to navigate the medical system as well. And so I felt like, you know, as a woman in her forties, I should not have to bring my mom to my doctor's appointment <laughs> to have my concerns addressed. I was like, this, this is, crazy but this was the situation that we found ourselves in that was really really weird that's a strategy that I've heard a lot of black women a lot of women of color in general use is to bring up a white person to your appointment who loves you (laughs) (laughs) like I've heard stories people like oh they weren't listening so I brought my you know my white spouse or like someone who loves me who's white like can you just come with me to this appointment so they can listen to me (laughs) crazy that's crazy another strategy is like can you bring someone who knows how to speak medical right like who Mm -hmm. has a really high level of medical literacy and I've I've done that the first person I call is my friend who's a nursing director right like or I call a friend who was a radiologist and so I try to learn the terminology and and how to have a conversation with doctors at that level so maybe they can maybe not see my blackness as much and try to respect me (laughs) a little bit more um, to try to like elevate my standing and game the system of their biases to my advantage. Like quick story, there's this comedian that I really like, Sarah Jones or something, I think, but she does a lot of impersonations of people of different races and ethnicities and life experiences. And so she was telling the story about how she's like walking down the streets in LA with her friend and they jaywalked and they got stopped by police officers, her and another woman of color. And she's being mistreated by them in a way. And she said, she was trying to figure out quickly, like, how can I elevate my status? And she went straight into her British accent character that she has. Yes. And she's like, that kind of let her off because they have this bias that British people are like cool, smart people and you don't mess with them, right? (laughs) That's right. That's, that's why I feel like I get to do that. When you bring yeah, your white person, yeah. like you're trying to. Completely. Completely. That's a way to try to kind of bring your army and stuff. But I, I feel like this. I'm curious what your experience is. Like, I feel like I have to carry the weight of racial inequities and all these negative experiences that I had. And there's this whole armor that I have to just go to a doctor's appointment when you're supposed to be the most vulnerable. Yeah, it's, it's always, it's, it's really, really funny because, you know, you'll, so many people always say, you know what, breast cancer doesn't discriminate, you know, um, and, and I think it's, it's very naive to say that it's, it's just like white friends saying to me, but I, I don't see you as a black person. I don't see people of color as being 
different. And I'm like, because you've never walked in our shoes. And that's pretty nice of you to say, like, glad you love me as a friend. But saying that is you're, you're really missing the mark, really missing the mark. And so when people say that breast cancer doesn't discriminate, talk to somebody who's, you know, black or uh, indigenous person of color going through the cancer experience. And then you hear what their experiences are. And then you tell me to my face. Yeah, people who say that have no idea about like social determinants to health and um, like how different one person's journey can be just because they occupy a different body and like the meaning that we ascribe to what different bodies look like and how we should respect them and respect those people. And so as I think about like discrimination in the process and in the journey, I would love for you to share more about the reconstruction part of your journey. Yeah, so navigating the breast reconstruction part was really, really stressful for me because I think it's pretty well known that, you know, when you when you're going through any kind of medical procedure, the healthcare team that you're you're assigned to, they usually try to upload you with information about, you know, what to expect, how to care for your body, your scars, whatever, your pain management, all of those things you get ahead of time so that you have time to process it and, and it, you know, gives patients better outcomes, sense of control and better outcomes. And so I was looking for that for myself and so part of that was dealing with the scars so from my surgery when I was 14 it left a definite scar around my breast around my nipple and that I was always acutely aware of and you know as a little girl growing up and you get cuts and boo-boos I I was aware that black skin often heals differently you can get keloids or hyperpigmentation in these scars that take a very long time to fade. And so that scared me as well. And so when I was meeting my plastic surgery team, that was something that was really important for me to find out what does this surgical procedure look like on a woman of color? And can I get those images and figure out how to best care for my skin? And so as I was going into these appointments, I kept getting images of women who had breast reconstruction, but they were all white. And, you know, so then I started hanging back after these appointments and saying, okay, I like, you know, I got all the information, but there's this one component that's missing for me. And I I need to see what this reconstruction surgery looks like on somebody who's got a darker skin color. I need to see it on black women of color who look like me. And it, it just kept being dismissed. One, you know what? It always looks better on Black people. Black people always look great when they have surgery on these, you know? And, you know, then you sort of come away from that appointment saying, well, if it looks so great, then why isn't it in your portfolio? Where are those images? You know, where's the proof yeah. of the pudding, you know? I'm like, I, I shouldn't <laughs> just have to be- take your word on it. Like, you really believe it's true. Why aren't those images there? If it always looks better... So why am I not on the front page? Like, I don't get it. Yeah. Don't you want to put your best stuff forward? Exactly. Put, put your best <laughs> stuff out there, you know? And then or they'd say, well, you know what? We don't have any on file, but we can get those to you really quickly. And then those really quickly was like a callback later saying, 
I've been spending an hour, you know, with my contacts here and other cancer care centers in the States, and we don't have those images. And that's where I really felt my heart sinking. So it's really hard to go into this surgery, to lose your breast, to be told that you're going to lose your nipples and you don't know what your scars and your body is going to look like afterwards. It's really hard to process and to accept that you're doing this to yourself. Um, and so the, I went into this not knowing what I was going to look like and not knowing if what I looked like afterwards was normal and not being given clear guidance about how to manage my scars and to alleviate some of that stress and anxiety. Like I'm doing everything that I can to make my scars look better, but I, but I wasn't given that. I felt like that was really missing. And like, it's the reconstruction and other elements of this as well. Like you were sharing the story about the makeup and the wigs and just like there are different elements of reconstruction in your breast, but also the post-cancer reintroduction to your body and how you want to present yourself to the world that doesn't center us. Absolutely. Like that's, you know, from some of my other black female friends who were going through breast cancer experiences and in one of our cancer care centers, they, they have a service that is dedicated to, you know, making women feel better and look good, you know, in spite of their, you know, cancer, losing their hair, their eyebrows, what have you. And so you can go in there, you can book an appointment with, you know, a, a consultant who can help you with makeup and hair and wigs and what have you. And so, you know, two women go into this center. Uh, one's a black one and one's a white one. Why don't you guess which one comes away with a bag full of goodies and the other one comes away with nothing and feeling more defeated than when she went in. Yeah. Coming away with nothing or coming away with the promise of I'll get back to you or the directive to look things up on the internet. Like, but I'm not walking away with my goodie bag. Yeah. Cause you weren't thinking about me. Yeah. Ah, how did you navigate this reconstruction? Construction period like where were you putting all that energy and frustration and kind of working through your emotional and mental state like what did you do with all of that you know what I, I'll be honest and it wasn't a pretty process that feeling like my voice wasn't heard that you know, the, the loss of that relationship with my son and that bond when I was losing my breast, that that story wasn't being heard or, or valued, that I was somehow supposed to be grateful that I was getting these, you know, new perkier looking breasts and my natural sagging mommy boobs. None of that sat well with me. And it's so I, I sort of retreated from the world because I was not happy with this part of my cancer care experience. I was not happy with what was going on and, and not feeling like I was a part of that process. And so I did slip into a depression. I stopped seeing my body as a whole, whereas motherhood reconnected me with my body. Breast cancer severed that relationship once again. And so I stopped seeing my body as a whole. And I would sort of look at myself from the chest up 
but not looking at my reconstructed breast and then looking, you know, sort of below my chest. And I would see my body is in two parts and never that part in the middle that was my breast. I've just avoid that at all costs. Um, so part of that was just writing down my feelings. Sometimes I just write down, you know, like I really wish somebody would have images of women who look like me going to like, I wonder why I had to go through this alone and feel like there wasn't anything out there for me. And I just started writing notes, journaling to myself, you know, this wish list of things that I wanted or how I wish things could have been differently or what would I want somebody else going through this experience to have. And then I just gave it a name. I just called it my breast recognition project. And it sort of made me feel better about myself because I was just processing my emotions and writing them down. And it, it, it was just to help me feel better. I think writing or whatever outlet to just like put something somewhere is so critical. In some instances kind of makes these ideas real. And I love the fact that you named it. And like, maybe that also made it feel real. Like it was a thing. It mm -hmm. started to become this vision. I had that similarly too. After my surgery, I was in a very, very dark place. And I don't know if you've gone back to some of the things that you've written during this time, but I've gone back to some of the things that I've written during this time and it's very dark. And I feel really sad for that person and even like distancing myself from parts of myself. And then, you know, you keep writing, you keep writing. And I had this idea for this podcast because I found myself during this time, like only really wanting to talk to other people who experienced cancer in some way or had some type of medical trauma was the only way that I could find peace in a social space because I felt like they mm -hmm. understood me a little bit. Like I didn't have to explain a lot of things and they can get the darkness and kind of let that be for a little bit. And so I was like, oh, okay, Black Cancer podcast, cool, 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 you know, ready to do it. And then George Floyd was murdered. And everything that I'd written about doing this project, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I spent most of the time after his murder and the uprisings kind of half, like I would split my computer screen, like half of it was watching, you know, the protests that were happening and the news and live feeds all over the country, all over the world. And then the other part of my screen, I just kept watching hoarders. <laughs> I don't know. I just like, I just wanted to watch hoarders. I watched episode, <laughs> episode, episode over and over and over again. Like I just wanted, I just wanted to see other people's problems, right. you know? And so and that was happening for a very long time. And I was like, I can't do this podcast. Like I just, I couldn't create then. And I've talked about this before. There was a particular protest in Seattle called White Coats for Black Lives. And they were trying to activate the medical and public health community around Black Lives Matter. And I was so angry about it. And so I want to hear your story. What was it like for you to see health organizations make statements about supporting black lives when I'm like, I've been in your offices and I didn't feel this support for black life. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it was everybody sort of like coming out of their 
their vacation mode and realizing, <laughs> holy crap, you know, black people are angry and we better do something about it because the whole world is watching. And, you know, George Floyd's murder sickened me. It saddened me as it would anybody rightly so. But on a different level, when you're, when you're a black person, it re-traumatizes you. It was really hard to move forward because it was bringing up all of those experiences from your childhood, from watching your family members, your siblings go through things, what you go through in your career and feeling like all those barriers that have been there. And it took, you know, somebody filming a black man life being snuffed out of him for people to wake up and and take notice it's really hard when you're dealing with trauma to pick up the torch and want to join that battle as well so i i I had to take a moment to process that trauma but also not be afraid to name it when other people were trying to sort of like sugarcoat it, so to speak, and put out statements and say, well, you know what? We believe in diversity and equity, and this is one of our core mission statements. We know we're not perfect, but we're gonna do better. And thank you very much. That wasn't cutting it for me. It really wasn't cutting it for me. Um, So I found myself when I was seeing those kinds of statements, revolting against them and sending letters and messages to whoever sent that out and say, listen, it's not enough. It really isn't enough. You just cannot put out a statement without really listening to the stories of the people who are behind this movement. You know, those people that have been left behind as an afterthought for years and years. So it came from a place of vulnerability, my breast recognition project, but it was also authentic because it wasn't me sort of writing on the coattails of George Floyd. It was really me just being, I I, I need people to really hear what it's like being a black woman going through this breast cancer experience. And not for somebody to say that we, we value all, all people and breast cancer doesn't discriminate. No, you really need to hear how much breast cancer does discriminate and how my opportunities are so vastly different from somebody else from a Eurocentric background. How did the Breast Recognition Project come to life? So uh, there is a breast cancer group that's based here in Toronto and it's called Rethink Breast Cancer. And Rethink Breast Cancer, you know, in light of what was going on with George Floyd had put out some statements as well, which just didn't jive with me. And so I had reached out to their executive director and said, you know what, this isn't okay, this statement that you're putting out and these are my reasons why. Um, And I wasn't expecting much from it because other letters that I'd sent to other organizations 
sort of fell on deaf ears or you would just get more platitudes and, you know, brushed under the rug kind of thing. But she actually followed up with a phone call. She was just like, I hear what you're saying and I want to hear more about what you're saying. So I started just airing all of my grievances. And then I said, you know what, while we're here, just let me tell you everything that's bothering me. And this whole breast reconstruction thing has been bothering me. It's been three years since I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, three years since I lost my breast. And I still don't know what to do with my body. I still don't accept my body. And I still don't have options. And this is eating me alive. And I told her about my journaling and my notes. And I said, you know, I, I, in the back of my mind, I call it the breast recognition project because I feel like this is what needs to happen. We need to recognize, you know, the black and people of color's breasts and their stories. And she's like, we can help you with that. And it was, it was like whiplash. And I was like, my, my neck just like snapped pretty much. And I was just like, seriously, how can you help me with this? We're like, yeah, we, we, we would love to help you get this out there we can you know from their networks from social media like we can get you a photographer we can get you hair we can you know see about getting this published and I was just like yes yes and yes and by the way when we're talking hair and makeup we're talking black makeup artists and black hairstylists for those of us who still have hair and you know to take care of wigs and what have you I said it needs to be an all-black production let them know black in front and black in back. People don't realize that I don't just want to see black and brown people. I want black and brown people to create this thing that I'm seeing too. And I love your insistence on like, this needs to be an all black project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know what it is. Cause I've been, I've been looking at them pictures, girl, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what is the thing that you made? So the breast recognition project for me, first and foremost, it was a cathartic project. I needed to take those notes in my journaling and give them life. And so it was feeding a cathartic purpose for me. I, I needed to have that moment where my, my voice was really hurt. And how was it heard was by writing about my experiences of what it was like going through breast cancer as a woman of color. And I wanted to see what other women of color's breasts look like after reconstruction. What did it look like? And so, so Rethink Breast Cancer put a call out there through their social networks. Um, and seven other women came on board. And so we you know, had two days of photo shoots. Um, and so we came together. And so part of it was celebrating the beauty of Black women in spite of cancer so just really feeling beautiful and good in your own skin and that was something that was really really hard like because you you feel like cancer's taken everything away from you like you're there's no sensation in your breasts anymore you've got these scars some of the women had lost their their hair and their eyebrows but to be made to feel beautiful in that moment and feel strong and confident in who you are in that moment and to feel like People care about my story. You know, it, it, it was all encompassing, you know. And so that, that was really amazing to have that experience. I probably 
didn't even answer what your question was. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's a, that is exactly it. Like you put this whole production together. You had two day photo shoot. These absolutely incredible images of these beautiful black and brown women and what their bodies look like in this way. Like I have showed people who are like afraid to get genetic testing for breast cancer Mm -hmm. or afraid to even do self-exams because they're scared of what could happen. And so I shared it with them in a way to say, this is normalized. I just had a conversation with Michelle and she put this together. Like, these are what, you know, these women look like and, and they look beautiful. Like we're celebrating bodies that have been resilient. We're celebrating what our bodies look like after this, this whole process. And during this whole process, like, how can we normalize? I think it's so powerful in the project and in the work, but at the same time, this is like a very personal experience to you and so what did it feel like to see yourself from the photographer's perspective like in this this like glossy print like what was that like yeah that, that was that was a real um that was really really interesting because you know going into it even though this was my project and my vision coming to light it doesn't mean that uncovering my physical scars and uncovering my body was an easy feat for me. It's not like I was skipping in there, like just dropping my shirt and and saying, take me as I am. (laughs) It really wasn't like that. There was a lot of sleepless nights leading up to it. And, and, and just, again, all of that trauma and emotion of processing like your body, you don't even look at your own body. So how is somebody else going to see you when you can't even stand to look at yourself? So all those doubts were in the back of my mind. And, you know, the photographer, she did a really phenomenal job of just like, you know what, there is no pressure. Sit how you want, take some pictures, I might give you some guidance. And then very quickly, she started just showing me what she had on her her camera. And she's like, wait a minute, that's a beautiful picture. Yes. Wait a minute you saw something beautiful in me where all I saw was, you know, grotesque scars and pain and trauma, but you found beauty in that. How is that even possible? And I felt like in that moment, I was just uplifted in a way that I had never experienced and I wasn't expecting to experience. That's amazing. It's like, who's that girl? <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because every woman as she was walking in, like we did not know each other. We were not friends. We belonged to the same, you know, breast cancer group, see each other's blog posts or what have you from time to time. But to see them all walk in and sort of feel like, I recognize that expression on your face. You're like wondering what the hell did I just walk into? What did I just sign up for? I don't know if I can do this. I think I'm going to be sick. <laughs> and then to see them walk off the set, looking uplifted, joyous, relieved, you know, proud, beautiful, strong. It, it was the same experience. You know, I was there for both days of the shoot because I wanted to see all these women and, and see, you know, thank them for raising their hands to be a part of the project and giving a voice where they, there was none before. 
it's this one sense of like, you see the transformation happening within yourself. And then you see the transformation happening within these other women. I don't know how you took it, but if it was me, if I was responsible for making this happen, I, I think I'll be bursting from the inside out. Like just thinking about the impact that this can have on so many people to be able to feel even a fraction of what you were feeling in that moment is, I mean, I would, I would explode. I would absolutely explode. Oh, that's, that's really sweet. Like, you know what it, it is, it's when, when, you know, he, you know, talking with the other women and just seeing how they had been like me, they just sort of bottled up these experiences and their, their voice because I didn't feel like there was an outlet for it in the cancer care community. But all of you, you can see that all of our experiences are very similar. There's that. So there's, there's giving, you know, black and people of color a voice and putting those images out there and having their stories told and heard. And then there's the other side where, um, or the, the healthcare providers, the cancer care providers, for them just really to be aware that, you know what, we do good day in and day out. We, we, we help people with their cancer diagnosis. We provide them care, what have you, but we're still missing something. And we had no idea that this is what people were going through. And I think, so it's, it's both. It enlightens you know, one set of the population where it's uplifting another. That's really special to feel like this project has done that. It's, it's filled a void and given a voice where there's been nothing but silence, but then it gives other people food for thought to think about, you know, how can we improve our care and our patient experience? You know, if we're really like a patient-centered organization, then really hearing the experiences of various communities is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's this like meta impact that you can have with this as it goes out to the world. And I hope rapidly that people know that this exists and is accessible to them and inspiring them to make some structural changes in the options that they have available for women of color who are navigating reconstruction then yes, your personal experience, but another element of this personal journey is reaching kind of back to not just your own little girl and your relationship to your own body, but what you are modeling for your little girl, your daughter, and how she is watching you in this process. You know, how have you brought your daughter along yeah that's been a tricky one you know even though the breast you know nurturing and breastfeeding bond with my son was severed when I lost my breast little kids as they go through life you know they're always in the bathroom with you um you know and so he got used to seeing my my new breast he didn't always understand so it's sort of like they they jump from puddle to puddle so they, they're in it they ask a whole lot of questions they forget about it and then they're in it again and so it's like you're constantly retelling the story to them yeah and so so that's how it's been for the past three years with him where he forgets and then you know he asks the question you know why do your nipples look different than mine and then they go through it again and why do your 
breasts feel so squishy. And I explained to him that they're, they're not real, they're implants and that there's cancer. And so, you know, I'm constantly having this conversation with him. On the other hand, for my daughter, getting close to this age where I was aware of my breasts and feeling these lumps and not being happy with my body. And so it sort of put up this wall and this fear of going back to that child, that young girl that I was growing into her body. And then being aware that, you know, I have body image issues and I've had them for a very long time because of this experience and not wanting to download that onto her. So I sort of kept a lot of my experience quiet from her without sharing with, you know, she knew that I had a mastectomy. She knew that there was reconstruction. She knew that I had no nipples, but because I couldn't accept my body, I, I just shielded her from that. And I did not want her to see that and go through life fearing her breasts and just doubting her body. Not that I was pretending to be something that I wasn't. It was just I just wouldn't go there. So I wasn't pretending, but I wasn't opening up either. But when I got my hard copy of the Breast Recognition Project, she was one of the first people that I gave it to. And I said, I know I've been talking to you about this, my vision, and, you know, here it is in color for you. This is my story. This is the women's stories. And her eyes lit up she was just like wow mom this this is this is amazing what you're doing is amazing really beautiful I love what you're doing I love reading the women's stories it's wrong that your experience has been different from other people and I'm so proud of you for speaking up and putting this together this will be really helpful for other people so just that recognition I felt like it was the right time to open up to her I'm yeah I I don't even know what to say to that like it's I mean, is there any greater impact than to go through some of the worst traumas of your life and to have your child look at you and say that they're proud of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never, I never even like thought of it like that, but yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it was it, a lot of it was like a lot of self-preservation, you know, not to to get her involved with it. But I think when I look at how the timing landed with the project that it couldn't have been any better. I'm just, I'm in, I'm in awe of, of you and what you've been first and foremost, been able to create for yourself, the space that you demanded for yourself is what created space for other people and what expanded your daughter's idea of good bodies or what does it mean to go through trauma? Understanding that there are different ways of being and that to be such an important message in your formative years. So, I mean, I I think there's this temptation that even I'm feeling right now as we wind down to say, look at Michelle, look at everything that she's had to endure and the biopsies and all the traumas and, you know, the diagnoses and the mistreatment in the healthcare system. And, and then she made this thing happen. Like, let's just wrap (laughs) this with a nice big pink bow with a pink ribbon on it. And look at this incredible thing that she did and everything's great, but it is a 
reductive narrative. It is. That is like not the way life works. <laughs> so it like is. what now? Like what now? What's what now? Yeah. I'm glad that the project is out there. I'm glad that women can access it online for free. I'm glad that it's being shipped to cancer care centers across the country. Uh, I'm glad that it is making people stop and think. I've gotten messages, emails um, from doctors to complete strangers. Some of them people of color, some of them not, but just all acknowledging you know, this disparity in our healthcare system and acknowledging that, you know, the experience of Black women and women of color in the cancer care community matter. And then saying, you know, like, I will do more to, to try and make sure, like, when I go into my appointments as a white person, if I'm seeing only white images, maybe I can speak up and say something. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for that. And I think that's, that is lovely that I'm hearing those things. But where I feel like there's there's a whole lot of silence is from those big cancer care agencies and those big community and nobody's hitting up my phone and saying you know what remember that thing you know we're going to do better it starts with this and and nobody is making that bold statement or step to to make something like having a database of black women like you you've got tons of images of white women that you can offer up at your information sessions and in your clinical practice. Why aren't you taking pictures of the black women? Why is it assumed that everybody wants to see just what plastic surgery looks like and breast reconstruction looks like on a white woman? Why is it assumed that that's the go-to, that that's the norm? Why, Why is there a discrepancy there? And so I come away from this and I'm like, this project shed a light on this inequity, um, this, this experience. It filled a need for, for this kind of project. It filled a need for, for women to have their voices heard. It's great, it, it's filled a void. And it, they can easily say when somebody, a woman of color, a black woman comes into their office and say, you know what, here's a website you can go to, here's a resource that you can have that doesn't involve a lot of effort on their part. What scares me and saddens me to think is that if someone that I love who is black or color, you know, my sister, my nieces, um, you know, close friends, if they were to be diagnosed tomorrow and went into the hospital and were given breast reconstriction options, their options wouldn't look any different than what mine have been for the past three years. Mm. It would be the same. It's just that maybe they would be given my resource, which is great, but their options are not any better than what mine were. And three years plus launching Uncovered, this breast recognition project, I still don't have those images of what I want to see in breast reconstruction so that I know what I want to do with my body. I still can't move forward because I don't have those images. And it scares me to go under the knife again and say, I want to do this because I don't know what it's going to look like in the end. 
And I just want to have those images so that I can process it and make an informed decision. I don't have that opportunity still. It's, it's like a double-edged sword. It's, it's great that it's out there. It's filling a void and it's, it's shining a light on this issue. But at the same time, we're still stuck in that same place where I have been for the past three years. And that's the difference between representation and actually systemically changing your options. It's not enough to just see it. Like, yes, I want this resource that I created. I created something that I needed, yes. But it's not enough. That was just a first step. And so this is what I did. What are you gonna do? Right. What are your actions? How are you creating space and options for me that I can actually not me only just changing my own decisions, but the people that I love and people who are coming behind me who might find themselves in this situation too. As I'm listening to all of this, the narrative is as black women, as women of color, we're always in this state of constantly needing to fight for our voice constantly needing to advocate for ourselves and in the process of creating the things that we need we not only help other people like us but we augment and improve systems but it's not enough I can do this thing for myself and other people but it's not going to be enough and that is what I feel like we're in this constant state of fighting for people to listen to us And that shows up in these like larger system issues. And that shows up when I have to go to the doctor's office every day in these micro moments of our lives. And that's what it is. It's absolutely true. Yes. It's easy to wrap it up in a bow and be like, oh my gosh, you know, Michelle looks so beautiful. All of them look so beautiful. You know, women with breast cancer and breast reconstruction look beautiful. So what's the deal? Yeah. But the bigger issue is that this still systemic, there's still systemic underrepresentation of Black women and women of color in the breast cancer narrative. So yes, there's some beautiful pictures and I feel happy about the resource that's out there. But the bigger systemic issue, I can't tackle that alone. I need those people with the power who have the seats at those tables and at those you know, um, executive levels to say, we can do more and and we're willing to do more. Like they they need to take that bold initiative. Yeah. And we'll definitely link to the project in the show notes, but I just want your voice on this podcast right now, telling other women who need it for themselves and other people who listen to this, who have decision-making authority to actually change systems where can they find out more about the Breast Recognition Project? Right. So the Breast Recognition, you can go to rethinkbreastcancer.com. And uh, on their website, you will find um, Uncovered. It's called Uncovered, a Breast Recognition Project. And there you will find all of the photos and you can read the stories about the women who participated in this project. You can see what kind of... uh, breast cancer they were diagnosed with what stage uh, of breast cancer they were at and you can see like again you can see their images and stories and it's at rethinkbreastcancer.com uncovered breast recognition project 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for answering my Instagram DMs. (laughs) (laughs) And you can be a mommy on your own, 100%. I'm just going to put that out there again. You can do it. I've got girlfriends who've done it. I appreciate that because listen, I I tell my sister this. I'm like, hey, I want to move back to New York because I want to have a baby on my own, but I can't be in Seattle because I don't have family out there and I need a whole network. And like, here is me, this quote unquote strong black woman asking for help. And I was like, hey, are you, can I live near you so you can help me? And she's like, absolutely not. The year she's like, as soon as my last kid goes to college, you want to come and bring a baby up in my house? No, it's going to be oh. me and my husband and you're going to mess up my plans. And I'm like, are you serious? So I've got to figure out, like, I definitely want to have this baby, but I got to figure out where I'm going to live. <laughs> it can be done. It can be done. Black Cancer is created, edited, and produced by me, Jodi Ann. Thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing your story with us. To make sure that other Black Cancer stories become center to how we talk about cancer, rate, subscribe, like, all the things. Check out our website at blackcancer.co and on Instagram at underscore black underscore cancer. Let Michelle's Breast Recognition Project let you know that trauma comes with endless wisdom for ourselves and those around us. Tell someone you know about Black Cancer.